Well, this uh, morning's message, I'm going to divert a little bit from the book of Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians, and we had covered the first three chapters. Um, The end of the third chapter ended with a doxology of Paul, where Paul talks about the power of God and how God is able to do even more than what you could ask or think, and not just more, but far exceedingly more. And so I wanted to take a moment to talk about that a little bit this morning and talk about the topic of prayer. We have started a prayer ministry as of about a month ago, and that's a wonderful opportunity where we get together and we can talk about just the, uh, the, the practice and discipline of prayer and some examples of prayer from the Bible. But I thought that this would be a good opportunity to be able to talk to, uh, about that with, uh, with us as the church family as well. Um, Prayer is one of these areas that um, I think for almost every Christian, um, especially um, early on, but even for those of us who um, have been in the faith for quite some time, it can be a struggle. Um, Sometimes we we struggle with um, not being overly repetitive. We struggle with knowing what to say. And on the other hand, some people will um, take prayer to mean what it doesn't mean, which is basically this kind of health, wealth, prosperity kind of of, uh, method of getting whatever you want. You know, and certainly there is no shortage of speakers, preachers and teachers out there whom I would say are false teachers um, who say that God's will for you is to be as rich and as wealthy and as powerful um, as you would like to be. And uh, so a lot of people will talk about prayer and they'll point to various passages in the Bible that talk about how God will give you whatever you ask. Um, so that um, ties into what Paul had talk, been talking about at the end of Ephesians 3 when he says that God is able to do far more exceedingly more than what you would ask or think. So how do we reconcile some of these difficulties? Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that our prayers, when you lift up prayers, you have your request to God, they may not always be answered the way you want them to be. And yet we have these scripture references that say that God will answer whatever we ask of him. So how do we reconcile that? You know, as, as we study scripture, one of the things that we have to remember is that scripture is perfect all the way through. I think you guys would affirm that. And we would also say that scripture, there is no contradictions. If it is perfect, that means there are no contradictions. So in these areas where we see verses that seem to promise what we have not experienced, then we have to come to the question of how do we reconcile that? How do we be able to explain that? And and I want to be able to spend some time on that this morning to help you understand that, because the more you understand the nature of prayer and even the context of which some of these statements are made within the scriptures, um, the better off you'll be, the more you'll be able to tap into the true power of God and be able to understand the role and function of prayer in our life. So as we progress on, I'm going to break this message this morning into really four parts. And as you see in the back of the bulletin, um, the title is Prayer and the Power of God. And our purpose this morning is to understand the basics of prayer and how it connects us to God and his Power. Now, prayer is a big topic. There are so many great and rich examples of prayer throughout the Bible. Um, there's no way I could do it all justice. This is really kind of a basic primer, if you will, um, especially in light of the power of God and some of the abuses that, um, that happen with regards to prayer. So we'll have kind of a high-level look at uh, prayer and, and the power of God. And as I mentioned, we'll break this out into four parts. And in fact, my outline is that um, I will list out four basic requirements— Four basic requirements for believers to leverage the power of God through prayer. Four basic requirements for believers to leverage the power of God 
through prayer. And the first section is to believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. Now, this is intended for us to understand that there is no part of Scripture that is false, that contradicts. So whatever promises we see in Scripture, we have to affirm it as true because we know that the Bible is true. And when we look at that first verse that you see up there, that's the very end of Ephesians 3 that we covered last week. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so we see Paul here affirm God as one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And of course, as we look at that, we have to think about some of the promises that Jesus made with regards to prayer. Take a look at John 14. John 14 Verses 13 and 14 read, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so we have the first of a number of major promises from Jesus Christ in this short section of John. In fact, going to the next slide, John chapter 15, he reiterates it. John 15, verse 7, he says this, if you abide in me and my words in, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And just in case that's not enough, we go to verse 16 in the same chapter. John chapter 15, verse 16, read, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And that's not all as we move on forward to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24 read, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. So right there from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, over a span of three different chapters in John, in the book of the gospel according to John, we see repeated promises from our Lord Jesus Christ that whatever you ask, God the Father will give it to you. Whatever you ask, God the Father will give it to you. And there is no doubt that there is no shortage of prosperity preachers that will go to these passages and say, see, if you, if you pray it, if you have enough faith, God will give it to you. Whether it be wealth, whether it be healing of, of sicknesses or, or disease or illnesses, whether it's that job or that house. Um, recently, I, I saw video footage from Joel Osteen who talked about how um, when you're, he made a comparison to you and your children saying that when your children are successful and they're well-dressed, it makes you proud of who they are. They've done well. And the same way God the Father wants you to be successful and, and wealthy so that he can be proud of you and that you would be, you'd be able to make an impression on behalf of him. Well, we know those things are absolutely false and they can be contradicted in many places and in many ways throughout Scripture. So we want to be able to understand these verses in context and also recognize that while we have verses such as this where Jesus makes these promises, we also have many examples through Scripture where prayers are not answered, even by those who are saints. 
even by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll take a look at that. So as we take a look at these statements, we have to ask the question, what is the context of those statements? What is the context of those statements? That's the first question. What is the context of these promises? Jesus Christ made these promises, but as always, one of the most important keys to interpreting the Bible is context, context, context. What was the context of those statements? And the second question I would raise is, does that mean God must always give exactly as we ask? Well, I think you already know, and as I look out, I see a lot of you already shaking your head. You understand that God is not obligated to answer our prayers the way we would want him to answer them. So how do we reconcile them, reconcile that with these statements of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's going to bring us to the second section, the second point this morning. The first was to believe in God's promises, and the second is to understand God's purposes. So as we have read those promises from our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want you to push them aside or to start putting modifiers on them or to say that, well, these things aren't really true. You certainly want to believe everything that you read from the scriptures. You want to believe everything that our Lord Jesus Christ said, everything that the Holy Spirit has revealed through his prophets and apostles. But this leads us to the second point of understanding God's purpose, because when you understand God's purpose, you'll understand the nature of those promises. Now, you may have noticed that those promises from Jesus Christ, and really I focused on those promises out of the book of John for good reason, because that's where I believe Jesus makes those statements most emphatically. But to be able to understand why he made those statements in the book of John um, from chapters 14, 15, and 16, it's helpful for us to understand the context and as we take a look at the book of John overall, and I know a number of you during the adult Bible study actually um, have been or are continuing to do a study of the book of John, which is wonderful. But um, when we take a look at the book of John, recognize that this book is filled with confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They are filled with confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And just as some examples here, consider John 2, 18 and 19. The Jews challenge Jesus' authority. This is shortly after he had overturned the tables in the temple. Remember that? And they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? Uh, that was um, the first of many confrontations. John 5, 16. John 5, 16. Um, John stated that the Jews were persecuting Jesus for his works on the Sabbath. You may remember, in fact, all the Gospels document this well. A lot of the uh, miracles and the signs that Jesus performed were on the Sabbath. And I believe that he did this very intentionally because the Jews were very legalistic about Sabbath works. And so 516, they were persecuting him exactly for that reason. But then you look at 518. 518, the Jews also sought to kill Jesus because he was calling God his own father. And by calling God his own father, he was essentially making himself equal to God. And then in John chapter 8, verse 59, the Jews sought to stone Jesus because he claimed to be the great I am. Remember, he had talked about how Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they asked him, wait a second, you're, you're not that old. You're, you're actually pretty young. And Abraham goes back um, centuries. So are you saying that, that you, were, you were actually there during Abraham's time? And he said, well, um, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood that. That was a reference back to the Old Testament. That was a reference back to the burning bush incident when the Lord revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. 
And then continuing onwards in the next slide, you'll see in John chapter 11, you may remember that Jesus raised up Lazarus from the dead. He raised up Lazarus from the dead. And then verses 47 to 53 showed that in response, they were planning to kill him. So he had raised up Lazarus from the dead. And believe me, I mean, think about this. If there was ever a sign to prove that you were truly from God, I think raising up someone from the dead should be it. But the response was that instead they wanted to kill him. And then even in John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the Jews planned to kill Lazarus also. So not only did they want to kill Jesus for raising Lazarus up from the dead, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus was proclaiming the work that Jesus Christ had done. And because of him, people were coming to him. And then in verse 12 of that same chapter, that's when Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem for the what would be the start of Passion Week. And then verses 44 and 50, um, Jesus issues kind of this final statement regarding those who will believe him and those who will not. That happens at the end of chapter 12. He basically says those who believe in me will have eternal life. Those who will not will face judgment. And, uh, and then from John chapters 13 through 17, I have that highlighted for a reason, because it's in this section that we saw those promises from the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is basically Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Um, he goes into Jerusalem, and then after his final confrontation with the Jews and the Jewish leaders, he goes up with just the disciples into the upper room where they would have the, um, their, their last supper together, and he would share his final message uh, to the disciples as well as lift up the great high priestly prayer. And then following that, in John chapter 18 and 19, chapters 18 and 19, Jesus is arrested, he's falsely convicted and crucified, and then finally, the last two chapters of John, John chapters 20 and 21, is Jesus' resurrection and his post-resurrection appearance to the disciples. So this is just a really high-level look at the confrontations between Jesus and the Jews and, and really how this progresses through the book of John. And then we look at the next slide. We're going to look at this upper room. I talked about this upper room. John chapters 13 through 17, that's where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And in John chapter 13 is the Last Supper. Um, that's where they have the Last Supper. Jesus also reveals that um, Judas will betray him, though he doesn't mention Judas by name. Um, he talks about the one who's going to dip the morsel into the cup will betray him. And uh, then in John chapters 14 through 16, this is his final message to the disciples prior to his arrest. He is going to spend an um, extended period of time prepping them, encouraging them, and, and teaching them one final time before he is arrested. And that leads into chapter 17, which is the great high priestly prayer unto God. That is the longest prayer that we have from our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the remainder of John, as you saw, John chapters 18 and 19, he's arrested, falsely convicted, crucified in the last two chapters is his resurrection and his appearance to the disciples. So this should give you some context to the book of John and what we're looking at when these statements were made. They were up in the upper room. Jesus was in the upper room. He was sharing his final message to his disciples as he is making these statements about prayer. So let's take a look at how John chapters 14, 15, and 16, that those, those three chapters that describe the, this final message of Jesus to his disciples, let's look at how it starts. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, 
Just read with me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Why would it be troubled? Because he just told them that he's going to have to leave them. So their heart is troubled. They have been with Jesus for the better part of three years. They have witnessed his sign and miracles. They have witnessed all these confrontations. They have been taught constantly by him. They recognized him as the Christ, the son of the living God. And now Jesus was saying that he had to leave them. So he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus says he's leaving, and then he says he's going to prepare a place. Now why is he saying that? He's saying that because he wants the disciples to recognize that they have hope. They have hope in the future. Not hope in this world necessarily, but hope in the future for when Jesus Christ returns. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus Christ saying, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with the Father. I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. And you will be able to come with me after I return. So already from the very start of this message to his disciples... He is setting the tone of helping them think eternity, help them think of their eternal future, of their eternal destination, of the big picture, what comes at the end of all of this. And verse four, this is, he says, and you know the way where I am going. And that's where Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And recognize when Thomas says we do not know the way, he's thinking physically. He's thinking an actual path. He's thinking an actual, you know, like, like pulling out a map and being able to see where we're supposed to go. And that's where Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a wonderful statement from our Lord proclaiming that he is the only way to salvation. It's not something that you do. It's not someplace that you go. It is a person that you know. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if it is a saving relationship, that is what will bring you eternal life. And so when Jesus focuses on him being the way, recognize the focus is upon the next stage, not this one. The focus is upon the next stage the eternal state when we're with our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. So the focus here is very much eternally driven. And then jumping to the very end of chapter 16, so we looked at how chapter 14 starts. When we look at the very end of chapter 16, look at these last two verses. Jesus says this, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own house, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So this message ends with Jesus Christ talking about that this hour is coming. That's the hour in which he is going to be crucified. But it's very interesting in verse 33, he says that in me you may have peace. Only in Christ may we have peace, but in this world you have tribulation. And we're going to take a look at some more passages um, as some of the more some more verses just in these three chapters. But I just wanted to show you how it starts and how it ends so that you understand that the tone is very much eternally focused. And it's very much showing that the peace, the eternal peace, what you have hope in, what you can look forward to is when Jesus Christ returns and brings us up to heaven with him.
What we have in this world is tribulation. What we have in this world is difficulties. So that should already start to stir up your thinking because all of those promises that we read from Jesus Christ about prayer falls between those two sets of verses that we just read. Talking about our eternal focus into the future, the tribulation that we have in this world, but the victory that we have in Christ. So let's take a look at the context of some of Jesus Christ's promises. And uh, looking first at John chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, we see the two verses that I just read to you. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But when we look at the surrounding verses, verse 12 and verse 15, verse 12 and verse 15, we see in verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And then verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, it's an amazing promise that he makes right there in verse 12 when he says that those who believe in Christ will do even greater works than Christ. Uh, this is amazing because when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no one that could have done the signs and works and miracles that he did. Well, except that his disciples actually did many of those signs and miracles. But the greater works was that the church would be started on the day of Pentecost. That the believers of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ would actually get started and would be added by thousands every time the gospel would be proclaimed as you read through the book of Acts. You, you see that the gospel is spreading out, starting in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and, to, and then to the rest of the world, starting with Peter and John in the early parts of the book of Acts and then transitioning over to Paul. Um, after he had persecuted the church, he would be saved by God and turned around and then he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. These are the greater works. This is what they would accomplish. And this is what we continue to accomplish today when we evangelize. When we help bring people to Christ just through the evangelizing, just through the sharing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, as he's talking about, about asking anything in my name, it's in context of the greater works that we will do. It's the greater works that we will do for his purposes, for, to, for us to fulfill the will of God. And then, of course, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There, there is an assumption here that not only are you to be in the will of God as you pray, but also that part of that will of God is that you are obeying the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ out of your love for him as Lord and Savior. And when we look at the next promise, John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, you see verse 7, that's the one we read. It said, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But when we look at the rest of the verses, starting in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The context there is the fruit that we are to bear as believers. We are to bear fruit as believers. 
See, all of the Old Testament, when you think about the Old Testament and the testimony of man that we have in the Old Testament, just through the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, if it proves nothing else, it proves that we are absolutely incapable of following and worshiping God. That has been the testimony of Israel. That was the testimony even of Gentiles. When you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, even before there was a Jewish nation, there were all Gentiles and we were so good that God had to flood the entire earth as his uh, measure of judgment towards us. That is our legacy. But here, what he's focusing upon is that now that you are in me, you will bear fruit. You will do exactly what man has been incapable of doing all the way up until now. Because you are in me, I in you, the Father is in us, you will bear fruit. And that is the focus here of Jesus Christ being the vine and that you are the branches. That you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. And when we think about the fruit that we are to bear, the scriptures are actually very clear about those fruits. I don't have it up on the slide, but Galatians 5 talks about walking by the spirit as opposed to the flesh. And it talks about the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. You know, you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and it talks about love. And it gives you all kinds of descriptions of what love is and is not. Those two are fruits of believers. So we are to bear fruits. We are to obey. We are to grow in Christ likeness. That is very much the idea of Jesus' promise here. And not only in John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, but let's look at John 15, 12 through 17. John 15, verses 12 through 17. You see there the verse 16 that we read. You did not choose me, but I choose you. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Well, this is very much following on a very similar concept, very similar theme of bearing fruit. It's right here in the same chapter, coming very soon after the last passage we just read. But when we look at the rest of the passage here, starting in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus Christ express his love for us yeah he died on the cross for us he died on the cross for us and jesus actually gives this commandment to us as his disciples that you love each other as he has loved us that is a high command that is a hard command but that is one that we must constantly challenge ourselves with especially this morning as we celebrate the lord's table later on in this service Verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That is the ultimate expression of love that you're willing to die for one another. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And then verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Notice in verse 16, the focus is upon bearing fruit. The result and the purpose is that you will get what you ask for when praying to God. And then verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. So bringing the same focus that we saw in verse 12 is repeated again in verse 17, that we are to love one another. 
And so the context here of this promise that whatever you ask, the father will give it to you is in the context of our love for one another and bearing fruit in our relationship with one another. And then we go on to the next verse, actually following right up um, from that passage we just read. Just read this. Here, Jesus doesn't talk about prayer, but it's very interesting that right after those verses that we just read, here's what he says. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, let me stop there. Remember just those examples that we just saw of the confrontations between Jesus Christ and the Jewish leaders, how they wanted to kill him, how they wanted to stone him, how they were seeking to persecute him. They were even wanting to kill Lazarus. And Jesus Christ here is saying in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They saw firsthand just how the world treated Jesus Christ. They saw firsthand the treatment that Jesus Christ received from the world all the way to the cross. They saw how Jesus was continually rejected, no matter how great his works were. Even raising someone up from the dead, which should have been the ultimate sign that he truly was from God, instead was reason for them to want to kill him all the more. You know what Jesus Christ is saying here? They're going to want to do the same thing to you. They're going to want to do the same thing to you. But Jesus Christ is calling for us to stand firm. Now, I didn't include all the passages that talked about the promises of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this passage, I mean, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, we could spend months on this passage. It's so rich. But there are numerous promises of the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit there for? The Holy Spirit is there to strengthen you to do the will of God the Father. And to be able to stand strong and to be able to proclaim the the great gospel of salvation, to fulfill the great commission no matter what persecution you may face and continuing on in this passage verse 21 but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me jesus is explaining that they're going to do this to you for my name's sake and what's interesting you read through the book of acts i mean early on when the religious leaders try to get peter and john to stop preaching they didn't tell them just to stop preaching they said stop preaching in that person's name And so the persecution they would suffer would be because they were proclaiming life through Jesus Christ's name. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. That's to say that they are guilty of their rejection of the Messiah. Jesus appeared. He did his works, his signs and his miracles. He proved who he was and they are guilty of rejecting him. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Now that's an astounding statement because the one who has hated Jesus Christ was none other than the Jewish leaders. And Jesus here is saying that even the Jewish leaders, though they claim to follow God the Father, they hate God the Father just by the way they treat me and by the way they're going to treat you. And then finally, finishing off this little passage, verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. 
verse 25, but they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. And this is part of the amazing power of God that the sinfulness of man would be used to actually fulfill his purpose. The word from the Old Testament is they hated me without cause at the end of verse 25. And then verse 26, one of the promises of the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. The fact that the disciples would testify of Jesus Christ, you know what that's called? That's the Great Commission. That's the call to evangelize. We do that today whenever we share the Lord Jesus Christ with those who don't know Christ. Which, by the way, that should be one of our main focuses as believers. You know, once we are saved, we have the church and we have those who are outside the church. Within the church, we are to love one another. Outside the church, we are to share Jesus Christ. And not be afraid to suffer the shame that comes with it. In America, we don't necessarily know this shame, though we're starting to see persecution growing more and more against those who hold to the Bible, who proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, all the works that are done around the world, and I'm going to use, you know, Gail and Nita and Brett as an example. They went overseas to Myanmar, and of course, they had a dental ministry that they were doing. It was a mercy ministry to those who needed that kind of service. But all that was pointing towards their ultimate need for the gospel. It was an opportunity for them to share the gospel and to give people an opportunity to respond and to be saved. But there are many people around the world, you know, if you tell them that I'm going to travel the world to help meet people's physical needs, they will celebrate you. They will love you for it. I'm going to go to try to bring food to the hungry. People will applaud you for it. I will go to try to bring world peace between nations. People will love you for it. And today I will try to solve the global climate crisis. You know, that gets a lot of celebration. But tell people that I'm going to share the gospel and that the gospel is that only through Jesus Christ will you have salvation. Watch those smiles turn to frowns. Watch that happiness turn to anger. They will be offended by it. How dare you suggest that there is only one way to heaven? How dare you say that your religion is the only right way? You will receive the derision very similar to what the disciples received. And in countries where Christianity, where true Christianity, true biblical Christianity is outlawed, there are believers that have to be underground in order to hear the true word proclaimed. There are people that risk their freedom, their livelihood, in order to be able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So in those countries, you can't go to those countries and bring these false promises that whatever they pray for, God's going to give them if only they have enough faith. No, that's, that's heresy. That, that's a lie from the devil when we start to say things like that. But what we can say is that you can ask the Lord whatever you wish in the will of God. And God will provide it. In terms of fulfilling his will, fulfilling his purposes, doing what we have been called to do. And then continuing on, John chapter 16. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, we see the verses that we read there before. Um, Verse 23, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. 
But looking at the rest of the context, starting in verse 20, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Now pay attention to this. He says your grief will be turned into joy. When will it be turned into joy? Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. So that's the illustration. Verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. When is it, according to verse 22, that our heart will rejoice? When we see the Lord Jesus Christ again. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus is making a promise here that we will rejoice in that day. Once again, reestablishing this eternal mindset. Reestablishing this need to look forward to eternity, to look forward to the future. The hope that we have in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. And that's why after that, in verse 23, he says, In that day you will not question me about anything. In that day when he returns. And truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And the idea here is that while you are here and I am gone, you are to do the Lord's work. And if you ask God for anything in my name, in order to be able to do this work, he will give it to you. You have a mission now until that time that Jesus Christ returns. But what's interesting also, verse 24, he says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Well, actually, up until this point, the disciples have made plenty of requests of Jesus Christ. Some of them met, some of them not met. In fact, one time James and John even came with their mother to Jesus Christ, asking to be able to sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus Christ up when he reigns for eternity. But here he says, you have asked for nothing in my name. The idea of asking in my name is asking with me abiding in you, my commandments abiding in you, and my will and purpose abiding in you to do what I have called you to do. And then continuing on, once again, just a reminder, chapter 16, soon after that, those verses we just read, it ends with this once again. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So hopefully this gives you a much better idea of the context of those three chapters. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, when Jesus shares this final message with the disciples before he is going to be arrested. He is prepping them. He is helping them to be prepared. He, is, he had to tell them first, I'm going to leave you. And the reason why we have those three chapters, the reason why we have this, this long message from our Lord Jesus Christ was to prepare them for what's going to happen. But to also give them hope that Jesus Christ is coming back. So to take these verses that Jesus Christ says, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you, to take that out of context and say that you will receive whatever you want from the Lord Jesus Christ only if you have enough faith, is to rip those verses out of the context of Scripture and to ignore the very message of our Lord Jesus Christ to say that persecution is coming. You will face what I have faced, but you have a hope that can never be taken away. And while we will rejoice in the day that Jesus Christ will come and see us, we can even rejoice now knowing that that can never be taken away. 
We can rejoice now knowing that our future is eternally secured. We can rejoice that the death that Jesus Christ paid on the cross with his blood is for eternal life that can never be lost or shaken or taken from us. But as we continue onward, I ask this question, so how are we to understand God's purpose? Because we're still in this second section, believe it or not. Well, reading scripture helps us understand the context of God's promises. Whenever you see promises of God mentioned, always ask yourself, what is the context of those promises? And second, prayer to God is not intended to make God into a personal genie. That's essentially what, we, what happens when we pray to God and expect God to give us whatever we ask for. And third, God richly supplies us according to his purpose in us. So we go to God in prayer, and if we are praying within the will of God, we can be assured that God will answer it in his way, which will be the best way. It might be yes, it might be no, it might be wait. And when we do pray, the last point, when we do pray, recognize God will answer us, but not always as we desire. Now, the last couple of sections will be a little bit quicker, but we now move to Section three, the first one was to believe God's promises. The second one was to understand God's purpose. The third is to embrace God's will, to embrace God's will. How do we understand God's will? Let me say this. Whenever we mention God's will, there are two types of wills of God, and both of them are referenced in Scripture. One is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will, or sometimes called his decretive will. Why is it called decretive will? Um, Because it's his will of decree. It's what he decrees to happen. He is in total control. He He is the one who ordains all things to happen. So this describes God's sovereignty and what he has ordained to happen. The second type of will of God's is God's commanded will. His commanded will, or sometimes described as his preceptive will. Preceptive will because of precepts. When you look at scripture, precepts upon precepts, these are basically the commands. These are the rules. These are the ways of life that we are to follow. So we have God's sovereign will and we have God's commanded will. Whenever you see God's will mentioned in scripture, you should stop to ask yourself, which one um, are we talking about here? Because they're both often referenced in scripture. Everything that has happened in human history has been by the sovereign will of God. Everything that we are commanded to do, all the commands that we have in Scripture, is God's commanded will. We can actually disobey God's commanded will. We know that well. We disobey far too often. But God's sovereign will cannot be thwarted. It can never be overturned. It can never be changed. And when I say embrace God's will, what I'm saying is that we should embrace both. Both God's sovereign will and God's commanded will. We should embrace both. Now, as we continue on, taking a look at some verses, James chapter one, verse five, James chapter one, verse five. This is an example of God's will for you. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without approach and it will be given to him. This is an example of God's will for you. He wills for you to have wisdom. This is something that you can actually ask for and know that the Lord will give it to you. Ask for wisdom, because wisdom comes from God's word. Wisdom helps us to understand God, 
helps us to understand his purposes, helps us to understand his will. And that's why James can be so forthright to say that if you, any, of you, any of you lacks wisdom, ask and God will give it generously and without reproach. Because wisdom is what God desires us to have. And then James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So it says, if the Lord wills, this is talking about God's sovereign will. We may make plans to do certain things in life, but God's sovereign will will end up trumping our desired will. And here, James is illustrating a point that don't be overly presumptive about what your what your plans are, what you're going to do. And especially if you're a child of God, you are in the hands of God. You may make your plans, but the Lord is the one that's going to guide your steps. He's going to direct your steps. And he may bring you to some unexpected places that you did not plan upon. How often can you look back at your life and see examples of God working in your life in ways that you did not initially want, but now that you look back, you are so thankful that he did? I know in my life, I have gone through two failed engagements. One is a non-believer, one is a believer. And as a believer, I can tell you that at that time, of course I wanted that relationship to work. Of course I prayed for God to work and to help bring about reconciliation and to help us to be able to move forward. But he didn't. And he ended up bringing me a much better answer in my wife, Alice. Far greater than any one I could have asked for or imagined. You know, and those are just some examples. And looking back at my life, I mean, prior to being saved, I was traveling around the world, making a good income, climbing the corporate ladder. But the Lord changed my heart. And put a desire in my heart not to, not to earn more and more money, not to um, climb that corporate ladder and to gain more recognition from the world, but to now serve God. And little did I know at that time that he would actually bring me here with you guys to be able to serve in this capacity. God may not always answer the way you want him to. He may not always fulfill what your desires are. But ultimately, I can guarantee you that you will see the goodness of God in the long term. John, James, James chapter 4, 1 through 4. James illustrates this same concept here. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That is a reference to prayer at the end of verse 2. But look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wrong motives. Remember, Jesus Christ, what he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Remember his commandment for us to love one another, to do his will, to have him and God the Father abiding in us. 
and to have the Holy Spirit, which, which is given to us as a gift, to, to be the, 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 the power within us that helps guides us and directs us. But here it's talking about wrong motives, which is when it's not focused upon God, it is always selfish. Your motives are either self-focused or is God-focused. And then moving on, just an example from our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. I'll read through this uh, fairly quickly. But this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know this passage well. Then Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little bit beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What is that cup? That is the cup of wrath. That is the cup of judgment. That is what he knew he was going to face on the cross. But what's very important is the way he ended this prayer, and it should be instructive for us. He said, Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as what? As you will. Our prayer request to God should always be with an understanding that God's will is better than ours. And while we make these requests and we want to make them known to our Lord, the Lord our God, and, and certainly he could fulfill them, which should cause us to praise him for, for answering those prayer requests, recognize that God's purposes are greater than yours. And the way he answers them is going to be greater than the way we may want. And then going on, verse 40, and he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I believe that's illustrating the difficulty of prayer, even for, uh, even for these disciples. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus Christ First and foremost, while he is asking for the cup to pass for him, most prominently he wants God the Father's will to be done. And then in verse 43, he came, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. And whenever he talks about the hour, he's talking about the hour of his crucifixion. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus Christ had made his prayer. But his exact request was not met. Though Jesus, if you understand his priority, his priority was on the will of God the Father. So in that sense, it really was met. And then another example from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, whether this thorn was actual a physical infirmity, was it some sort of physical handicap that he had? Was it a person um, that he could not get rid of? Was it some spiritual warfare? We do not know. And I'm glad that scripture is not overly specific because God can use multiple methods to sanctify us. But verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Now, if there was ever a man who deserved to have his, his prayers answered, I would think it'd be the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power, 
And I love how he uses power. Power is perfected in what? In weakness. And then Paul says this, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's prayer to God was not directly answered. But what Paul saw was an even better result. He saw that in his weakness, Christ's power is made perfect. And that's why he endures all that he endures. He recognizes that the result, that the purpose in him going through what he goes through is for the greater glory of God. And that's why Paul can say in that doxology, now to him who is able to do far more exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think. Because Paul made a certain request, but the result is even better. He did not get the request that he asked for, but he got a better result than what he had hoped for. And so when we think about embracing God's will, remember that God's will is greater than ours. So you can, this next slide. So the first thing, God's will is greater than ours. Um, Second, God is wiser than us. So not only is his will greater than ours, but he is wiser than us. He knows what is best. Third, God knows the big picture. He he declared the end even before the beginning. He knew everything that was going to take place. He knows the big picture. Thus, the fourth point, thus God's will is not only better for his glory, but that final point is that God's will is better for us as believers. God's will is better for us as believers. And then the final section, and this will be short, The fourth and final point is to trust God's goodness, to trust God's goodness. You've seen this verse before, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And then verses 29 to 30 just shows the absolute security of our salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his son. Everything that we go through is meant to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he He also glorified glorification, describing what will happen to us in the future state when we're up in heaven with God. This is saying that your glorification is absolutely certain. And God causes all things to work together for good for you as believers. For those, for for you who love God, for those called according to his purpose, according to the end of Romans 8, 28. And then... Just a couple of more verses, Genesis 50, 20. We know this from the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph, after being confronted by his brothers, actually his brothers are falling down at his feet because they're worried about what Joseph's going to do to them after the death of his father, knowing that they're the ones that sold him into slavery. Genesis 50, 20, this is Joseph's response for, to them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, how many times, when you think about Joseph's life, and that was a 13-year time span from the time he was sold into slavery to the time that he stood before Pharaoh and was blessed by Pharaoh to become second in command. 13 years. How many times did Joseph wish he were back home? How many times did he wish that he were not in prison, that he were not falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? 
that, that he, could, he could be back home with his brothers and with the rest of his family. But at the end of Genesis, he realizes that everything was for good. What you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In that moment, if you were to ask Joseph, do you wish anything would have happened any differently? I would have guaranteed you Joseph would have said no. Because I see God's goodness. I see what God had intended to do. And then last verse I'll share with you, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. This is Paul talking about contentment. You want to know the secret to contentment? Verse 13 gets twisted all the time. It gets twisted out of context to say that God, God is going to give you whatever you want. That he's going to enable you to do whatever you want. But that's not the context at all. Verse 11, he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means meaning with very little. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I'm quite sure Paul never directly prayed that he would be suffering, that, that he would have very little to be able to eat or to be able to live on, that he would be stoned, that he would be left for dead, or that he would be treated the way he would be treated. But through his experiences, he learned this in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Meaning no matter what circumstance God wills for me to go through, he will give me the strength to endure it. That is the power of God. That is the power of God to glorify himself through us in our trials and circumstances. So final points. I'll close this up with uh, these applicational points. Um, how should we pray? First, we should pray without ceasing. Um, we know that from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. I won't read it, but those verses are there. You can write them down. Um, second, we should pray to praise God and in order to align ourselves with God's will. We should pray to praise God and to align ourselves with God's will. And that's even in the Lord's Prayer. When we say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And next, we should pray for the sake of our fellow saints, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 6.18 talks about, tells us to pray at all times for all saints. And then pray knowing that God's ultimate good will result. Pray that God's ultimate good will result. We saw Romans 8.28 through 30, but I believe that this is also the point of Paul when he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Paul is not saying that to say that he is going to simply just give you whatever you ask, but what he gives you is going to be even greater than what you ask. You are going to be much more richly blessed than you could possibly imagine. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you that these blessings of prayer that I've talked about do not apply to you. They do not apply to you because God is not under any obligation to be able to answer any prayers that you lift up to him you first must recognize your need for his son, Jesus Christ. You must confess his son as Lord and Savior. You must repent of your sins, meaning to turn away from them, to make a commitment to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognizing that his death on the cross is the only merit anyone can, can claim to salvation. Our works are nothing more than filthy rags. We deserve nothing more than eternal punishment in the lake of fire for all eternity. But Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid that price so that we would not 
have to. And for the rest of us, I hope that this has been helpful and instructive with regards to prayer. And I would encourage you to pray unceasingly. I encourage you to pray and lift up your praise and, and glory unto God when you do. Align yourself with the will of God as you do that. Pray for one another and pray knowing that God will always bring about his ultimate good. Let's close in prayer.